All right, open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. I know we don't get a lot of preaching out of the minor prophets, but Haggai chapter 2. And uh, let me just say again that it's a, a privilege to be here. Uh, you have uh, spoiled me with your kind words. And, uh, you know, I'm old hat. I mean, you guys know me, and you're still nice to me. So I uh, appreciate that. And uh, I'll be sure to put in a good word for you to uh, Pastor Shot. Anyway, Haggai chapter 2. And actually, uh, several years ago, I was here on a Sunday night, and I preached a message out of Haggai 1. And uh, I uh, always wanted to get back and finish it. Haggai is only two chapters, and uh, uh, say more about that. But, you know, the minor prophets, we don't get a lot of preaching on the minor prophets, I think for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of the minor prophets, uh, they deal not only with Israel, but they deal with uh, future times. And boy, it can be really confusing trying to unwind uh, everything that's being said. And then you, you get into Zechariah, and he's got all of these uh, uh, visions that he's having, and he's describing them. And, and uh, you know, most pastors sitting there reading it and reading commentaries and trying to understand what's going on. And it's uh, not always, I think, by the way, I think once you understand it, there's a lot of practicality to it. But even now, I, I read some of these things, and I think, okay, if I had to put together a sermon on this, what would I say that is going to help people? And could I explain it well enough, uh, you know, without resorting uh, almost entirely to uh, such and such commentary says this and so and so says that? And uh, if you have to do that and you can't read the Bible and understand what God is saying to you, probably not a good idea to get in the pulpit and try to say that. So, uh, but Haggai is sort of the, the different minor prophet. He's very straightforward. Uh, there's not a lot of figurative language. There's not a lot of uh, visions. Uh, there are some illustrations that he uses, and we'll get into that. Uh, but very direct, and I would say very practical, and sadly, very overlooked. And so Haggai chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. The title of my message this evening is Motivation for the Work of Christ. Motivation for the Work of Christ. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray now as we look into this passage of Scripture and we continue our reading uh, this evening, uh, I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray that you would apply uh, the Word of God to our lives, uh, Lord, that you would have liberty in this service and that uh, where uh, conviction is needed, I pray that you would convict us. And where comfort is needed, I pray that you would comfort us. And I pray that you would do in our hearts what only you can. 
I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famed Baptist minister from England who pastored London's Metropolitan Tabernacle in the mid to late 1800s, he had this to say. He said, quote, It has come to be a dreadfully common belief in the Christian church that the only man who has a call is the man who devotes all his time to what is called the ministry. Whereas all Christian service is ministry, and every Christian has a call to some kind of ministry or another, unquote. By the way, that, that was mid-1800s he said that. How much truer is that today? We have a professional pastorate and professional pew sitters. And we almost feel as if the, the two can never mix and that, uh, look, pastor, we pay you to serve. And uh, that's a, an erroneous belief. What was true in the late 1800s is true today. And I think we all know that our very identity with Jesus Christ compels us to serve Him. Uh, at times, if I'm honest, it is a sense of duty. And I somehow got to, you know, push that duty button. Uh, my heart is not always uh, where it ought to be. And I say, well, this is the right thing to do. We're going to do this. And by the way, it's, it's right to do right. Uh, other times, there is a, a sense of gratitude that God has loved us enough and, and wants us to serve Him, wants us to be with Him, and He wants to join us in our service. And yet, all of us have our moments of weakness. Sometimes those moments turn into minutes and minutes into hours and hours into days, and before long we wonder how we got to the place in which we find ourselves out of fellowship and out of service. How can you keep serving the Lord when everything outside and everything inside is telling you to stop? When we come to our text here, Haggai is trying to motivate the people of Jerusalem, beginning from the top down. He addresses Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and then it Bible says, and the residue of the people. That is everybody else there in Jerusalem. Nobody was left out of the preaching. Now, when a little history here, when Cyrus the Persian gave the Jews the opportunity to return to Jerusalem, he specifically stated that he wanted them to build the house of the Lord, the temple. Zerubbabel and Joshua were, were uh, leaders of that group that returned. And within a few months, they had set up an altar on which they could offer sacrifices. And within two years, they had laid the foundation of the temple. Now, when Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians 70 years earlier, uh, Israel's neighbors moved into that land. Uh, before that, the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen, and it had been re-inhabited by the Assyrians. Uh, and then there were some other people from Israel, and you uh, collectively they all kind of became known as the Samaritans. And so now the Jews return to Jerusalem, and what do they find? They find all of their neighbors, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, they're all living there. The Assyrians have moved down into the land. There's all these other people who are not Jewish, who really have no uh, claim, uh, certainly have no promise from God that the land is theirs, and yet they're living there. And uh, these different groups tried to join the Jews not for the purpose of furthering the building of the temple, but quite the opposite. They tried to infiltrate and conquer them from within. You know, we talk sometimes about separation. Separation is not intended to hurt the work of God, but to further the work of God. 
I mean, you want to hurt the work of God, get people in there who aren't saved. Get people in the ministry who aren't right with God. And that's not just true of church, by the way. We can find uh, evidence in, in just about any organization. You get somebody on the inside who is not in favor of the stated goals of the organization, and you're going to have a problem. And so they tried to infiltrate. They were, the Jews were smart enough to keep them out. And so when that didn't work, they wrote letters to the new king, Artaxerxes, and they lied about the work that the Jews were performing in Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes ordered them to stop. And after 16 years of sitting idle, Haggai prophesied that they were to restart their efforts and to build the temple. And that was part of the message I preached several years ago uh, from Haggai chapter 1. I'm sure all of you remember it. I know it was a blessing to my heart. And so anyway, uh, that's a little joke there. And, uh, but they did. They started the work. And as soon as they started up, opposition to their mission also restarted. And uh, any time, this is the lesson, any time you intend to do something for the Lord, mark it down, you will be opposed. If you're not opposed, you're not working for God. And so they faced more, though, than just outward opposition. Of course, their neighbors were against them. But they also faced the enemy of self, inward discouragement. The work itself was difficult. If we were to go back to Haggai chapter 1, Haggai had told him, you've got to go up to the mountains, you've got to chop wood, you've got to bring it down. And uh, over that intervening 16 years from when they had laid the foundation, trash, rubble, heaps had kind of accumulated in the area. They had to clear all that away. They had to engineer the work site. They had to face the adversity of the non-Jewish inhabitants of the land. It was difficult work. But adding further to their discouragement was the knowledge that the temple that they were building would not approach the grandeur of Solomon's temple. Uh, we read the verse already, but look again at verse 3. Haggai asked them, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Now, interesting question. Because some people believe that Haggai, Haggai returned with Zechariah, and it's believed that Haggai may very well have been himself a, a, quite an old man who remembered that first temple. And now he's, he's making an appeal to them on a personal level. Who remembers it? Who of you are old enough? <clears throat> and he says, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? In other words, this, this building that we're building, that we're going to call the temple, compared to what you remember from Solomon's temple, isn't it really nothing? And he's identifying, he's not saying that to discourage them, he's identifying the point of discouragement that they already have, that they already face. Solomon's temple was not a large building, but it was beautiful. It had gold plating over all the interior surfaces. It had the original furniture, such as the Ark of the Covenant, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, altar of incense. It had a huge molten sea made of brass that sat atop uh, 12 oxen that were made of brass. It had 10 brass lavers. On the inside, the Bible describes in intricate carvings. It had all sorts of decorative touches. I mean, it was a little jewelry box. It was beautiful. And the temple that they were building... It would have some furniture, but it wouldn't have the Ark of the Covenant. It would have a little gold by comparison, but it was actually quite plain. 
And God knew their discouragement. And really, if we were to state it out, it's this way. Why work so hard against so much opposition for so little? No bang for the buck. And it would be easy to look at the task and say, it's not worth it. But let's remember, God's the one that ordered the rebuilding of this temple. He had a purpose. And so often we look around and we see the opposition of the world, and it's growing, by the way. And we see the, the treachery and the defection of those who call themselves Christians, who say that they're in the ministry. And yet they embrace every form of immorality, and they undermine those who are trying to serve the Lord. It's disheartening. And we look at the church and we think, well, boy, I remember when this church had a lot more people on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, and boy, we look at the pictures out there in the lobby and dedication days and, and people showing up and a large number of people in the annual baptism picture and, you know, all of those things. And it's easy to say, well, our best days are behind us and what I'm doing now is so small and so insignificant. Really, it's, it's nothing. My Sunday school class is nothing. I got a handful of children, and if I show up, great. If I don't, no big deal. But let me encourage you with this thought. God sees your work. And God has called each of us to serve Him. If you're saved, you're called to ministry. You have a calling upon your life. Nobody's left out. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, that those in the church were called to be saints. And again, and by the way, there are many verses where Paul, you know, you see your calling, brethren, and we could just go on and on and on. But in Philippians 3, 14, Paul acknowledged that he had been saved for a purpose, and as such he pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't the only one with a calling. Every Christian not only has received a calling, but as Paul said, it's a high calling. It's an important calling. It's significant. And it doesn't matter what the opinion of the world is, and it doesn't matter if Satan's whispering in your ear and telling you that it's not. And let me just say, all of that discouragement, and I'm human, it, you know, guilty is charged. But it's not Jesus whispering in my ear, what you're doing is unimportant. You've been saved for a purpose, and you are in this church for a reason. And whether you realize it or not, the call of God is upon your life, and you must fulfill that call. And so speaking through Haggai, God told the governor, the high priest, and all of the people there in Jerusalem, in verses 4 and 5, be strong, I'm with you, fear ye not. And then Haggai resorts to using foul language, four-letter words. He says, work! God is saying, serve me, work for me. I'm with you. And so as Christians, we have an obligation to God. 
we must fulfill the purpose for which we were called. And I want to give you three principles tonight regarding fulfilling that purpose for which we were called to serve God. Principle number one, the greatness of our ministry is determined by the greatness of our God. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Judah had started to build, but the work was hard. And the opposition was relentless. And if that were not enough, there were old people there, still in Jerusalem, still alive, who remembered Solomon's temple. And they came back to Jerusalem. And when the foundation of the new temple was laid, the young people were excited but the old people wept. The new temple would never be what the old one was. And uh, if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. I've got the verses written out. But Ezra 3, verses 11 and 12, actually describe exactly this. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy. Let me pause and remind everyone that we cherish the victories of yesterday, but we cannot live in the past. The victories of yesterday ought to motivate us to go forward. They shouldn't be an albatross that hangs around our neck and we say, well, our best days are behind us, there's no use. It's apparent here in Haggai that the older generation had discouraged the younger generation. And God sent Haggai to set them straight. The old temple had gold and beauty and the ark and the furniture. And for a time it enjoyed the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God veiled, sometimes in smoke or a cloud, uh, uh, perhaps a, a fire by night as they had known during the time of their wilderness wanderings when they were with Moses in the desert, but somewhere along the line, late in Judah's existence, God departed and took His glory with Him. Ezekiel chapters 9 and 10, and you'd really have to go through and read all of those chapters, but the Bible describes the departure of the Shekinah glory from the temple, and it describes that glory being above the Ark of the Covenant, and then it's on the threshold of the temple, and, and then it's on the mountains just outside Jerusalem or on the borders of Jerusalem, and then it's gone. And the people went about their business and never gave it a notice. Those who returned to rebuild this plain little temple 
faced opposition, internal discouragement. But God wanted them to know, I'm with you. That's important. I'm with you. You're doing work that I've called you to do. I'm going to be with you. My spirit remaineth among you. They were worried about silver and gold, but God told them the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And more importantly, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. In verse 7, God told them, I will shake all nations. And really, this is a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ in one image. When Christ came to earth, He was God shrouded in the veil of humanity. He was that Shekinah glory. And instead of being covered by a cloud or fire or smoke, or He was covered in human flesh. And when he walked into the temple at Jerusalem, the Shekinah glory had returned to the house of God. And much like Judah prior to their fall to Babylon, everybody went about their business and nobody noticed. But let me just tell you, they took notice eventually. He shook the world. B.C. became A.D. The promised resurrection became a reality. Christ set in motion the founding of His church. And when Christians went around the world preaching the gospel, their enemies complained that they were turning the world upside down. And that was just a foretaste of what's to come. The second coming is going to be so much more. And it's so easy to look at the struggles of this life and the hatred that people have for our God and to look at the results of our labor and say... It's not much, it's pretty small compared to the effort I put into it. But let me remind you, we have the privilege of serving the God of the universe. And He's with us. We don't go alone. And when you get discouraged, you need to remind yourself of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work. And labor of love, which you have showed toward his name. And that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Sometimes the greatest ministry is helping those who minister. If your labor is a service to Christ, then there is no small ministry or plain ministry. The work is great because our God is great. And so this evening, as we serve the Lord in order to fulfill the purpose for which we were called, let's remember that the greatness of our ministry is determined by the greatness of our God. Second principle, holy work requires holy workers. Look at verse number 10. Holy work requires holy workers. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, 
saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. By the way, we like to blame God for a lack of success sometimes. And here, God says, blame me. I'll take the credit for it. I did it because I'm trying to get your attention. Verse 18, consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as, the, uh, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth, from this day will I bless you. <clears throat> Interesting here, Haggai, the verses we just read, you'll notice this if you were to go back to chapter 1 and then again in chapter 2, it, they, it, it gives a specific time and Haggai is... Uh, is pronouncing a thus saith the Lord. He's giving a message from God. And really, uh, chapter 1 is, is the first message and is sort of extended through the whole chapter. Chapter 2 is three separate messages. My first point came from the first message. Point 2 is coming from the second message. Point 3 is coming from the third message, just in case you're wondering where to draw the lines on the, these points. But uh, God, through Haggai, asked the people questions that they were supposed to ask the priests. Now, understand, in the Old Testament law, they're, you know, it's... Uh, uh, if you've ever taken the time to read through the second half of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's, there's a lot there. And you read through it, and sometimes it can be, I know it seems kind of dry, and, you know, if this happens, then this, and if this, then this, and you're, you're reading all of that. And uh, there's a lot of principles, though, there in the law. But even with all that there is, every situation could not possibly be addressed. And so Haggai sets up a, a, an illustration or sets up a situation and he says, now, go ask the priests. And the idea here is th th this situation that he sets up isn't exactly written out in the law, but there are principles in the law. If you came across a situation, you didn't know how to handle it, you say, hey, I want to do what God wants me to do. What does the law say about this? You'd go to the priests, you'd tell them your situation, they'd say, well, here's what the law says and here's how it would apply to your situation. And so that's what he's doing. And in this case, he gives you the situation where a priest, and if you remember, uh, the priests that were involved in the sacrificial system, they wore special holy garments. And part of that, uh, the Bible talks about an ephod, and they've got a, a sort of a robe or a skirt. And he's talking about this, and he says, the priest now is carrying the flesh of a sacrifice in the apron uh, of his holy garments, the, the, the skirt, if you will. And he's got this holy flesh. Now, this this flesh, what makes it holy is it's a sacrifice. It's dedicated to God. Now, it comes into contact with an unclean thing, and here's the question. This holy flesh dedicated to God for a sacrifice, if it comes into contact with something that's unclean, does it make that which is unclean suddenly holy or ceremonially clean? And the answer is no. Now, we reverse it. If someone who is unclean, and there are a lot of ways that a person could be unclean according to the according to the law, but let's just say someone had uh, been around a family member who had died, and now the Bible describes them as being unclean 
because they've been around a dead body. And they had to go through, I think, washings and different things. The Bible tells you what you have to do to, in order to, to, to be restored uh, to where uh, you could come back into fellowship with uh, the people of Israel, worship and, and all of that. So, uh, but someone is unclean. And he says, there's, there's this person or this thing that's unclean, and it touches something or someone who's ceremonial clean. That is, they're holy to the Lord. Will it defile that thing or person, making him or it unclean and unholy? And the answer is yes. And so the principle is very simple. Cleanness cannot be transferred to what is unclean, but uncleanness can be transferred to what was formerly clean. We see this in the world all the time. We... we when I was a kid, before uh, uh, nowadays, uh, they, they have uh, vaccinations for chicken pox. But when I was a kid, if you got the chicken pox, you just got the chicken pox. And uh, so, you know, I remember being in elementary school and I got the chicken pox. And I, uh, I didn't go to school with the chicken pox. I went to school well. And guess what? I got the chicken pox. Now, me being well, I didn't spread my wellness to the school no, they gave me their chicken pox. And when I came home, I came into contact with my sister. And now there were two in our family with the chicken pox. And uh, uh, she did not transfer her wellness to me. And uh, in the spiritual realm, this same truth applies. Baptism and church membership and, and uh, the Lord's Supper. These, these things are all good and holy and noble and right. But they cannot confer holiness to that which is unclean. If you're unsaved and you go into the baptistry, uh, you, you'll, you'll enter dry and come up wet, but you will not be saved. There is no holiness conferred to you through that thing or through you know, eating uh, bread and drinking grape juice or joining this particular church or any number of other activities around the church. And yet, the unclean can soil and ruin the reputation of a church and the beauty of its ministry. Participation in church activities and ordinances does not make you a Christian. And so, God tells Judah here, hey, you've gone through the motions of worship. They still had priests. They still had sacrifices. But their heart was not right with God. They put themselves first. And, and they had returned to build the temple. But here they were 18 years later and the temple's not built. And in verses 16 through 18, God told them He'd judge them because they weren't right with Him. The, the temple remaining unbuilt was not the cause per se, but it revealed a cold heart. It revealed selfishness. But when we get to verse 19, God gives them a message of encouragement. After Haggai had prophesied in chapter 1 that they were to start to rebuild the temple, they did. They got busy. They began to rebuild it. They had returned to God in heart and they said, and God in response says, from this day forward, I will bless you. And let me just say, it's pretty hard to serve the Lord with a cold heart, sinful heart, a dirty heart. People try it all the time, but the result is misery and fruitlessness. Holiness is a separation to God. And my not simply advice, but my command from the Word of God to you is to get alone with God, confess your sins, renew your faith, 
And let me encourage you, God is quick to forgive and He delights in working through His children. And nothing motivates you more than knowing that God is on your side. But His work is a holy work and you must be a holy people. And so, if we're going to fulfill the purpose for which Christ has called us, we need to understand that the greatness of our ministry is determined by the greatness of our God. And uh, a holy work requires a holy people. But thirdly and lastly, today's service is tomorrow's legacy. Today's service is tomorrow's legacy. Look at verse 20, and we'll finish up the, the book. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. This last message of Haggai comes at the end of the book, and uh, it was specifically a message to, to uh, the governor there in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel. But it contains a lesson in there for all of us. A second time, God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And he gets more specific here about overthrowing kings and kingdoms and destroying the strength of the heathen. And uh, if you were in the Sunday school message this morning, you heard about the heathen. It is, I cannot make this up, Brother Dave. I, I actually have here heathen, comma, that is Gentile nations. It's amazing. Even a blind pig finds an acorn every now and then. Anyway, uh, Zerubbabel uh, had already seen one earth-shaking event when... Uh, Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, and, and uh, at that time, the, the, the Medes uh, and, and Persians were, a, uh, they were in alliance with one another. They really were two distinct people, but in one nation. Uh, but the uh, Medes were a little bit stronger, and, uh, but over time, the Persians had gained uh, the ascendancy over the Medes, but eventually, they were going to fall to the Greeks, who would later fall to the Romans, who would collapse under the weight of their own corruption. And we are living in the times of the Gentiles now. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you go back to the historical books, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, uh, when they give the dates, they always say when a new king in Israel rose to power, they would say who the king was in Judah. Or a new king uh, in Judah would come to power, they would say who was king in Israel. But now we're measuring time according to the Gentile kings. Times of the Gentiles has been a bloody epic, but we haven't seen anything compared to what's coming in the day of the Lord. And that brings us to the very last verse in the book. It says, in that day. And uh, that is a reference to the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, the Bible tells us that Zerubbabel would be a signet. You say, what in the world? A signet was an official seal or symbol of royalty. It was often on the ring and it was used to authenticate a, a document. Uh, papers would often be sealed. They would, the, the king would take off his ring and it would have uh, his symbol on the front of it. And he might uh, dip it in uh, ink and, and uh, uh, put, use it to, to sign a document. Uh, they, they may have used wax or even a soft metal like lead that was warm and he would uh, 
put the, the ring in there and it would put his signet. And what that meant was, this is authentic. That when someone would see that seal, they would see that impression that was made. They would say, well, that came from the king. This is the real deal. This isn't just made up. And what God is saying here is, Zerubbabel is my signet. He is my seal of authenticity. I have chosen him. And you look at that and you go, in what possible way can Zerubbabel be uh, a seal of authenticity? How is this prophecy true? Well, Zerubbabel was the son of Shealtiel, and he was from the tribe of Judah and of the family of David. And when we fast forward to the New Testament in Matthew's genealogy of Christ, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12 records, And Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. Again, there's another genealogy for Jesus in Luke. Luke chapter 3 verse 27 records Zerubbabel, which was the son of Salathiel. Now the spellings have changed slightly. Uh, because we went from translating from Hebrew into uh, translating from Greek. But we're talking about the same people. The names really are not different. The spellings have changed. But the important point is Jesus in the flesh was a descendant of Zerubbabel. And that's the reference there. And Jesus did indeed shake the heavens and earth during his first advent. But Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 describes a future scene. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're living in strange times. There are people, a few here, older than me. Quite a few younger than me. And I want to say to all of you, I have, until about two years ago, had never seen anything like what we've seen the last two years. I know that things are difficult. It's discouraging. I served eight years in the United States Navy on active duty. My wife served four active and I don't know how many years reserve, eight, something like that, six, six reserve. I have a son that served in the Marine Corps for four years active duty. I have another son who has uh, served over four years in the Navy and re-enlisted. I think it's fair to say I love my country. We are far from perfect and have been far from perfect, but it's still a place that I love and I hate to see what's coming. But you do reap what you sow. <clears throat> and uh, we have reaped much evil and much more evil is coming. And so I'm aware 
that things are difficult. Things are difficult for people with jobs, affording groceries, affording gasoline for their car. I get it. Things are difficult <clears throat> for Christian ministries. But I want to encourage you to keep going because we're on the winning side. I don't know how much worse it's going to get, but it will get better eventually. <clears throat> and let me encourage you with this thought. What you do today leaves a legacy. Your children, your family, your fellow church members will follow in your footsteps. And our names may not be remembered by those who come after us, but God knows. We're not forgotten. We have a legacy. And it kind of blows my mind to think about this, but someone may follow you who does even greater things for the Lord. Haggai's message was about rebuilding the temple, but it's about a lot more than that as well. What is obedience? Is it not simply doing what those in authority have told you to do? And we have the privilege of obeying the highest authority, and what do you do when everything on the outside and everything on the inside is telling you to stop? You know what you do? You keep going. You just keep going. You just continue. We call ourselves a community of faith, and, and I think that's true, but the essence of faith is believing the God whom we have not seen. I mean, I, I could read the Bible, but I, you know, 500-foot Jesus hasn't appeared to me. I'm not Oral Roberts, right? A little tongue-in-cheek there, but I've never seen God. But I believe in Him. I believe He exists. I can see when I cannot see Him, I can see His works. I can see His way in this world. And you think about it, you say, well, you, you know, from the outside, from someone looking on a Christian, they would say, well, you believe some God you've never seen. And who gives money to a church? Who spends time at church services? Who spends time visiting the lost or the sick or the forgotten? There's no obvious or immediate earthly reward. This is where faith comes into play. I believe God sees. And I, I believe that God is good. And I believe that the God of the Bible will reward us in a way that far exceeds whatever sacrifices we make. And I believe that whatever uh, short-term enjoyment or selfishness or disobedience we might take, that the consequences of that are far more weighty than we realize. See, that's faith. And God has called us to serve Him. And you're going to get weary along the way. And our small ministry and, and our little acts of service are significant. They're important. Don't believe the lie that what you're doing is not important. It is. It's significant. If nothing else, it's important because we serve a great God. And He's important. And our work is holy, our God is holy, and we must be holy as well. And we're all leaving a legacy. Make it a worthy one. The one who comes after you may be even greater than you precisely because of you. We all get tired. We all get discouraged. But serving God is a privilege. 
Christ could have chosen anyone to serve him, but he chose you. And he has a purpose for your life. Fulfill your calling. Every Christian must serve Christ to fulfill the purpose for which he was called. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray now that you would encourage us with your word. I think about these men that battled such difficult circumstances and so much discouragement, and yet eventually they did build the temple. And you promised them that what they built would even be greater than what the old men remembered. Oh, Lord, I pray that we'd not be weary in well-doing and that you would bless what we do. And even when we can't see the blessings, I pray that we would serve knowing that you're with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.